Welcome to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. Hey, brand lovers, it's Mark here. I want to talk about USPs with you today. USPs are unique selling propositions, and as far as I'm concerned, they are the be-all and the end-all of creating a great brand. And you know, the funny thing is about USPs is that they've been with us forever in a day. It's nothing new. It's nothing uh, dramatically different. It's no new tech device. USPs have been around forever. They are, simply put, the intersection between what you think your brand does best, what you think your brand does best, and what people on the outside think your brand does best. And most important, what matters to them. So what you think you do best, what people on the outside, that is your customers, buyers, suppliers, think you do best, and what actually matters to them. So I say it's simple, but it's deceptively simple because there are a lot of brands out there where you just scratch your head and you go, how did they think of that? That is so completely off base. Why did they create that product? That product doesn't answer anybody's problems. I don't get it. And there are brands that fail. The The highway of history is littered with cases of brands that could not get their USP right. So yeah, it is a simple equation, but it's really really hard to get right. Now, I want to talk in another show about how you get to your USP or how you start getting to your USP by starting with yourself, with a little bit of hard introspection, by figuring out why on earth you actually started this company in the first place, why you started this brand in the first place. That's not what I'm going to cover today, though. What I'm going to cover today is kind of the next part of that equation. That is the really hard part. Asking people on the outside what they think is cool about your brand and is that important to them. Now, in keeping with the sort of the spirit of this conversation, I, I want to bring in an objective outside person. I, you know, that's the way you get at the, the USP by bringing in objective outsiders to tell you what they think about your brand. Well, I want to bring in an objective outsider too. His name is Neil Belenke. Now, Neil is not a brand guy, and that's why I thought this was interesting. Neil's job is going into companies, figuring out what they do best what people on the outside think they do best, and what's attractive to outsiders. And making all that work so that these companies then can get sold for a higher price, or they can sell more of their product, or what's usually the case when Neil gets involved, they can raise some serious investment cash. So Neil, even though he doesn't really call himself a brand guy, is at his heart of hearts a brand guy. So why don't we start at the start. Who should be doing the questioning? Who should be going out and finding people to talk to to get an objective opinion on your brand? 
what are the qualifications? Now, back in the bad old days when I was working in big ad agencies, there were tons of research firms around that would take a lot of money off of your hands, and they would go out and ask consumers questions about your brand. People would do this in focus groups and ethnographies, a whole bunch of different ways of doing research. Now, fast forward to today, I'm not sure about you, but I don't have the money to hire a big research firm to go out and do my questions for me. So I guess what I'm saying is the most important thing is not to hire a big research firm, however, to learn from what they brought to the party. And what they brought to the party is an objective outsider's point of view. So. If you're going to be doing the kind of research that gets you to people's perspective on what you do best, you have to start with somebody who is an objective outsider. That means you can't go out as the president of your company and ask people what they think makes your brand special. Why? It's so obvious. Think about it. You wouldn't go up to someone and ask them what they thought about you, would you? They don't want to hurt your feelings, so they're not going to tell you the truth. And even if they do tell you the truth, you're not going to listen objectively. You're going to listen through the filter of, oh, I like what they're saying about me here, but oh, I don't like what they are saying about me there. So I'm only going to remember the good stuff. So you can see this approach is very, very flawed. Now, Let's get Neil's perspective on this. First, I'm going to ask him what exactly got him into this sort of asking the right questions, because he does have an interesting past on this in sales and research. And two, why it's so important to have an outsider asking the questions. Talk to me a little bit about how you got into this line of work. I, uh, interestingly enough, it's, um, it was through the sales channel, the sales stream. I was a, what we call legs and lungs salesperson. And I, I was always the guy that people said could sell ice, ice to the Eskimos in the old days. And my, my job I felt as a salesperson was trying to find a way to create the value that I thought my product offered and match that to a need that my customer had. And uh, bridging that gap was my job as a salesman. And it's, uh, it's allowed me to um, build a build a career around creating value by virtue of finding new uses, new needs, or new ways to message the connection between a product or service and a target market. You also have a lot of experience in market research, right? Did, was, did that help out a lot? Oh, no question. Because the um, the the my ideas of what that bridge could look like may have may have had in, in every case no no accurate representation of what the target customer actually wanted so as my career progressed it allowed me to be you know i i was invested in by employers and one of those big courses i got a chance to take was in market research and that market research was focused on validating those intuitive leaps mm -hmm. that i or my team made uh in trying to figure out how to connect a you know in this case these products to our target market so that they would see value. The, the big leap I always find when I'm working on brands, I, I start off by working with the founder to, to try and figure out exactly what they think is special and magical about the brand. But then I turn my back on that and I go to competitors and I go to clients and potential clients and I ask them and inevitably they give me answers about what, the, what is special about the product that a lot of times 
conflicts with what the founder told me. Is that, is that your experience as well? You know, it's, it's fascinating because I think each different industry has their own, uh, own uh, common experiences. That being one from branding and marketing, I've seen it a ton of times. Um, one of the things that other industries like market research taught me, uh, well, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was first hired, my manager in the market research, and this isn't a big pharmaceutical company that had no shortage of dollars to spend on training for their employees. So I was fortunate to be, um, to be uh, taught by many of the best. Uh, the first question he asked me, I think probably my very first day in the office was, if I asked you to figure out why physicians are prescribing a certain cancer medication, what questions would you ask me? And I started naming off the questions of like, what do you use it? What to, you know, as if I was talking to a physician, what are you using? Why do you use it? How much does it cost? You know, all these different things. And he looked at me and then slowly said, those are, those are really important questions, but the question you didn't think of in that probably long-winded answer I had was, why are you asking me that question? Huh. It, was, it was a groundbreaking learning for me to understand that I had just assumed the question he was asking. Neil brings up a terrific point. You have to know what you're going to be asking people. You know, it's the age-old uh, anecdote from Henry Ford where he, people said, well, how did you know what people were looking for? He said, well, if I would have asked them what they were looking for, they would have said a faster horse. And that has never changed. You have to know what sort of questions to ask people in order to get the insights that you want. Now, there are some questions that I always always asks of, of people who are suppliers or buyers or consumers or even competitors. And a, a couple of those questions are, if you think of this company, do you think of them as number one, number two, number three in a given specialty? For example, the specialty that the founder has told you that he thinks or she thinks that they're best at. Do you think of them as number one, number two, number three? And why? Why are they number three? Or why aren't they even in the top five? Another question is, when people hear the company name, when you hear this company name, what's the first thing that pops into your head? What do you look for when you're in the mood for what this company sells. So for example, if this company sells chewing gum, when you're thinking about chewing gum, what's the first thing you think of when you think of chewing gum? What about competitors? You know, I just said, uh, what do you think of, uh, is this company uh, first, second, or third in any, of your in any of the specialties that you consider? Well, what about the competitors? Where are they? Are they number one, two, or three in your brain? And if so, why? So, and finally, finally, although by no means the final question that you could ask, but finally for now, is there something going wrong in your life that you think this company solves? Is there what we call a pain point? Is there an itch that this company scratches? You see, by asking questions like this, you aren't asking that direct, blunt question, what do you like about this company? Because people don't know the answer. It's the old Henry Ford. They'll tell you a faster horse if you ask them what they want. People don't know what they want. But they do know 
what other companies are doing better. They can tell you where they think your company sits in their brain, number one, two, three, or I don't know. And they can also very clearly tell you what sort of pain they're feeling that your company might be able to solve. So what happens if you ask the right questions and you have a finely tuned sense of observation? Let's go back to Neil for an interesting story on the surprising results you can get when you ask the right questions. There was a, an organic baby, baby's bum rash cream. Mm-hmm. A, a, a sort of a more a more organic, more custom-made penitent for those of us who have young kids. Mm-hmm. And their their vision was to use this cream, but so the parents didn't have to put their fingers <clears throat> into the baby's bum. They used it like a deodorant stick. Mm-hmm. So that was what made them unique. Because there are a few other a few other organic penitents out there, but there weren't these these these, these you know speed stick type of applicators. Mm-hmm. So they thought this is going to take off. And it didn't do badly, but out of nowhere, they started hearing back from their market, from target markets completely unaddressed. Marathon runners have chafing problems, mm-hmm. and they started using these applicators and this organic anti-chafing cream. And these marathon runners, this this subculture, <laughs> made an entirely successful, dominated marketplace with this organic baby chafing cream because these applicators made it easy to carry, easy to put on really fast. You didn't get your fingers all greasy and have to have them all over for the rest of the race. Okay, so it's wonderful to have a keen power of observation, to ask the right questions. But what happens, as it often happens, if you come out and you see that there are a number of different markets or targets who would love your product, how do you figure out which one to go after first? Because you can actually go after one target, that doesn't work. Go after another target, that doesn't work. Go after another target, uh uh-oh, you're bankrupt. How do you go and find the right target? Now, when I'm doing this kind of thing, I, I generally look at the scope of the market, how many people are in the potential target market, How easy are they to reach? How big is the itch that they have to scratch? And often overlooked, even if it's not a large target that you're going for, does that target have great sneezing power? Now, if you're not familiar with the term sneezing power, it refers to their ability to sneeze their influence out and infect a whole bunch of other folks. So there's a wonderful example uh, about marketing uh, urban clothing. And when you market urban clothing, you market to a very small core group, let's say uh, hip-hop insiders. And from there, they then tell the people who are on the fringe of that group about the product. And from there, their girlfriends hear about it, or their older or younger brothers and sisters. And from there, then the people outside the community, let's say the kids, the suburban kids hear about it. And from there the non-cool kids in middle America or middle of wherever it is hear about the product. So by attracting a core group of people, you can actually hit a very large target. Uh, 
It's a very tricky thing though, because sometimes the target that you go after, you want the biggest target first, because you know that, that this target isn't going to sneeze, but you're going to be basically catching everyone. So it is a bit of a delicate balancing act. Let's hear what Neil had to say. The process is you, you put what you have as the product or service on one side of a whiteboard, for example, mm-hmm. and, then on the, and then beside that in the big open space, you brainstorm. Everybody under the sun that everybody involved in the brainstorming process can come up with who might potentially be a customer. And then you and you don't you don't there's there's no holes barred because you need someone really creative in the room to go to draw that link that allows people to build on. Oh, I can see why they might be a customer. Then that would open up this market here, for mm-hmm. example. And then what you do is you take a look once you've got all those all those drawn out. Let's say you have 20 different potential target customers. Then you, to the best of your ability, and this is easier when there's already something you can rip off and duplicate because they're already established a market. Then you quantify or you put a potential dollar value typically for the next 12 months. And then you take a look for the, you know, what the entire market might be in five years, and you say this is how much this each one of those 20 might be worth. Mm-hmm. And then you start Xing out the ones that aren't worth as much. And what you're left with is the same product or service you started with, but you've now quantified the potential value or the return on the investment of, take, of, that, of that product or service of all the different markets you could ever think of. Now you've identified the highest return on that investment, and now it's time to start figuring out exactly, and that could be market research and otherwise, we can get more into this, but that's how you start targeting the market before you worry about trying to sell to a specific, a specific market. You figure out which is the market you want to go to. You build, you, build, you build that plan before you start worrying about the tactics. So I guess this all kind of takes us to one place. You've done your research. You've talked to people on the outside. You've asked them what they think is special about your brand. They've told you something that a lot of the time is not what the founder thought was special about the brand. But that's what makes this process so invaluable. Because what we're looking for at the end of the day is the intersection between what the founder believes the magic is in their product or service and what outsiders, that is the customers, the buyers, the the competitors, what they think is magic about that service. Now, what I personally love about this process is that it no longer is your professional opinion stacked up against the founder's opinion. A lot of times I've had a ton of experience doing this, going up in meetings against people who are running the business and saying, I believe that this is what you should be doing with your brand. And they say, well, I believe you're wrong. The beauty of asking outsiders is that you never, ever have that conversation again. From this point forward, it is, if you're talking to the founder, you say, all the people who love your product think that this is what your product should be. And any founder who goes up against that kind of advice, that kind of information, well, they're kind of a fool. So here's what Neil had to say about the way founders take the news. 100% of the time, they haven't thought of all the potential markets that they agree could be potential markets. So not just those off the walls that they say would never work, mm-hmm. but the 100% of the time, there's, there's markets they haven't considered. And then the ones, I, I would say... At least 95% of the time, they're not open to attempting to uh, to go down the path of building a, that alternative market plan out unless their current market is 
uh, is currently failing or has already failed. Hmm. That, that, that It's necessary for them to have failed with their existing plan or have their existing plan um, be, be, be so limited that they're left with no choice but to consider new opportunities. Uh, you know, and just as, as a quick example, it doesn't mean the opportunities have to be good. That chafing example you used, yeah, we've got, we've got what started with baby bums. We moved to marathon runners. Well, if you build the plan out, you, say, you ask yourself, what are the unique attributes of this chafing cream? It stops chafing amongst a bunch of other things. Right. Well, who, then you say, who chafes? Well, then you get into the mar- marathon. Mon- marathon runners might have been might have been identified. Well, who else chafes? Well, I have no idea, honestly. But yeah. I'll give you a perfect example. Maybe astronauts. Yeah. So if astronauts are chafing, and if the if the the risk of an astronaut being severely chafed means an infection and they have to return to Earth, and the cost is in the tens of tens of millions to hundreds of millions, it's entirely possible that a single stick of that anti-chafing cream for an astronaut is worth more than five years of sales. To, uh, to baby bum cream. So that's why it's just worth going through that brainstorming session to, to, to stress test and completely remove opportunities, but also to consider completely different business models for the same product or service. Now, I, I have my own process when, uh, you know, I go, to the, I go to the founder and I say, okay, what do you think your unique selling proposition is? And we dig into that. And then I go to customers or potential customers or ex-customers, suppliers, you know, uh, buyers, uh, even sometimes competitors. And I asked them, what do I think, what do you think that the unique selling proposition of this product is? And inevitably, I get different answers. Um, So now I've got a whole bunch of different answers for what this product does best. How do I set up, do I set up like a a sort of a slush fund or do I set up a skunk works where we say we're going to go after moms, but we're also going to have a skunk works for... uh, for the uh, the marathon runner market, or the folks who are overweight and feel that they're chafing, you know, say between the legs or something like that, or astronauts, how do you do that? How do you set up the you know multiple trials without yeah. bankrupting a founder? So it, it all depends on the risk tolerance of the business owner or inventor or founder, and risk tolerance is often directly linked to cash available. Yeah. So. The uh, what I would recommend, and I did this in market research all the time, is just because a positive result comes back in a certain area doesn't mean you shift the entire company towards that area. Mm-hmm. You would you would begin in almost every situation. You begin with a pilot, and the pilot would be to build on what is the intuitive response or the or the the, the response that uh, from the market that says this is worth investing in, and you would build an actual plan around it. And you would take that plan and you would pilot it to a friendly or a, a likely chance of success. You want to give them the best chance of success possible. Right. So right. when you do that pilot, it is limited in scope. There's a finite amount of money that you're going to be investing in. It's for a set amount of time, and it has measurables as to whether or not this is going to be successful or fail as quickly as possible. We call that a gate. Yeah. Because if it is going to fail, you want to fail fast so it's not expensive and not a big distraction. If it is going to be successful, you want to establish what success looks like so you can quickly begin to replicate. All right, and that brings us to the last question that we're going to discuss with Neil. Who is the right person to be doing this work? I said right at the very beginning that uh, I have a course called Brand DIY, and you can get it at branddiy.com. And although I am a big fan of entrepreneurs taking control of their own brand, because, I mean, that's what it's all about, being an entrepreneur, right? Uh, taking control of everything and, and feeling like you've got the power. 
But there are some things like market research where you need to abdicate power. And I have seen this many times where um, founders try to ask the questions themselves and the results they come up with are less than ideal because, as I mentioned before, people don't want to hurt your feelings. So who is the right person? Uh, I think it could be anybody who is not you and who knows how to answer a question. Obviously, Neil, uh, coming from a market research background, it would be an extremely qualified person to do this kind of asking. But he too agrees that the number one thing you have to watch out for is getting an objective response from the target. And that means the target can't worry about hurting your feelings. Or on the other side, the target can't have an axe to grind and emphasize the negative far more. Even further, the target, if, they're, uh, if you're talking to uh, uh, a competitor, rather, not the target, not a consumer, but if you're talking to a competitor, remember, if you're the founder, they're not going to give you the straight goods. They're going to tell you what they think you want to hear so that they can keep a strategic advantage over you. So, you know, asking the questions yourself is, is fraught with danger. I would not recommend it. Um, and let's listen to what Neil has to say on that. Uh, he kind of has the same opinion. In market research, uh, one of the things I learned very early on is that there, it's impossible to gain a, uh, an accurate, predictable response if there's any connection between the person you are soliciting feedback from and the person representing the company who's looking for the feedback. Mm. That There has to be a Chinese wall there to the point where uh, it's built an entire industry on third-party firms who are, who are conducting those surveys on behalf of companies, blinded or not blinded, so that the target, the target um, market is giving unfettered, real, uh, un, you know, real, cons hopefully constructive, but real advice back that says, look, I hate this or I love it. And that's, that's, that's the kind of, and that's going to be the market eventually for the product. So you need to know how that unconnected market's going to respond. And for the people to be able to do that, or to be able to take care of building the plan, or to be able to take care of actually building the relationships, whether it's strategic partnerships or, or huge deals that allow for distribution, for example, my recommendation always find someone who's done it before. Yeah. You don't ever want someone to be learning on your dime where you're taking the risk and they're having to learn how to do something. You want someone who has the relationships in place, which shortens all the time requirements, mm -hmm. who has the experience to do it right so you don't give away your product or service, who, who are going to do it with the right people so you don't set up partnerships that are actually hurting you in the end just to get at something, a quick win in the beginning. So all those different gaps that you can fall into, a very experienced person or a specialist will be immensely more successful more predictably successful and in fact would probably raise the value of your company if you were to have outside valuation look just based on the fact that you have someone who's been there and done it before. All right, it's added value time. Added value time. Y'all know that I love to provide added value in every interview. So what is the added value when you interview outsiders about your product and what they like about it and what they would lose about it? Now, what I found doing a lot of pitch decks for startup companies that are looking for investment, a lot of these founders have come back to me and said, you know, Mark, 
um, this is actually going to be terrifically helpful when we go to investors because investors want to hear that we've really got the pulse of people who might be potential buyers or who are actual buyers. Now, this always takes me by surprise because I think, well, isn't it natural that everybody should be talking to their target buyers a lot before they go to market? But it turns out that it's not the case. So if you are starting a company and you are looking for investment, don't forget that an added bonus of doing a bit of market research and asking people who like your product, who hate your product, who are competitors, what they think about it is that potential investors might smile on you more. Now, there are other advantages. Once you've established a relationship with someone, you've done research with them as a consumer, they feel like they're kind of part of the company. They're helping you along your way, and they like that. People love to help out. The thing is, you can go back to them again and again and again and ask them not just what they like about it, what they don't like about it, but let's say you actually take their advice and you tweak the product based on their comments. Then you ask them what they think about it now. And what else would they tweak? Presto. What happens is you've suddenly got your consumer co-designing your product with you, and that makes for a better product. Well, that's all about all the time that I have today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to check out Brand DIY. You'll find it at branddiy.com. And please stay tuned or sign up for the podcast. You can go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast so you get every new edition as it comes out. And I look forward to sharing some more value with you next time. Take care. You've been listening to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast for brands that learn from the past, look to the future, and profit because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. 